In the year 804, a grizzled Frankish army under the command of the great king Charlemagne, the most powerful ruler in Western Europe since the fall of Rome, marched north through the recently conquered lands of Old Saxony, subjugated through fire and blood over the previous three decades. The Franks rode north, into the unknown, far beyond any lands conquered by the Romans, beyond the borders of the Christian world, to the Jutland Peninsula on the southern edge of Scandinavia. What they found there, waiting for them, on the ancient defensive earthwork between Germany and Denmark, known as the Danewerk, would not only shock and unsettle that Frankish army, but eventually go on to change the face of Western Europe entirely. It was an army of Danes, apparently led to the border by a king named Gudfred, as a show of force against any potential invasion of his lands. Whilst Gudfred was almost certainly not the only figure calling himself King of the Danes at the time, he was sufficiently powerful enough to feature prominently in the Frankish records for the next decade or so, during which time his soldiers would provide a major thorn in the side of Charlemagne's empire, and eventually, after his death, their descendants would move in en masse to capitalise upon its gradual decay, decimating the expansive Frankish coastlines and growing ever more prosperous as a result. Whilst Franks, Danes, Saxons and Frisians all share the same linguistic and cultural roots in the ancient Germanic past, Francia had long been a Christian kingdom by the time of Charlemagne, its kings having converted to the religion of the Romans close to 300 years before, during the dying days of the empire. Partially as a result of this affiliation with the late Roman administration, Francia had since risen to become the most powerful state in Western Europe, dominating much of modern-day France, Germany and Italy at its height, and seeing Charlemagne crowned by the Pope as a new Roman Emperor in the year 800. To the north, however, still existed a more ancient way of life. people up there had never had any contact with the Romans, besides trade items trickling up from the south. Up there, they still venerated the old gods, spirits of the forest, water and sky. While the Franks were moving into the prosperous lands of the Romans, converting to the Christian god of the south, the inhabitants of Jutland still made offerings to river gods. They worshipped the trees, and perhaps most terrifying of all for the southerners. Every now and again, when the gods demanded it, they gave up one of their own as a human sacrifice. 
It was these ancient societies and cultures, some of the oldest in Europe's recorded history, just to the west of the Jutland Peninsula, on the rugged coastlines of Frisia, that first began to be infringed upon by the Franks during the 7th century. After a lengthy series of wars, sometimes sparked by a reluctance to convert to the Christianity of the Franks, and at other times undertaken more out of old tribal rivalries, by the early 8th century, the marshlands of Frisia were finally conquered outright, though the hearts and minds of many of the locals remained resolutely unchanged for centuries to come. Next on the agenda was the neighbouring cultural sphere of Old Saxony, the same wild forest lands and prairies that the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons of Britain had first sprung from three centuries earlier. Just as the Franks moved in to the collapsing Roman province of Gaul. of the Franks and their pagan neighbours to the north were a brutal and protracted series of conflicts that raged on for generations. By the time Charlemagne came to power in 768, summary executions, massacres and desecrations of holy sites on both sides had become the norm. The Franks gave their pagan foes a simple ultimatum. Convert or die. During his own wars against the Saxons between 772 and their final defeat by around 804, the great king saw no issue with massacring those who refused conversion, perhaps most notably having 4,500 Saxons beheaded on a single occasion after a particularly difficult revolt. Holy places of veneration, such as Erminsul trees, were regularly destroyed. This was a holy war, 8th century style, and as Charlemagne's power grew elsewhere on his other frontiers, it only increased in scale and ferocity. On this occasion, the cross was very much preceded by intense violence, terror and anger. This violence left a lasting impression upon the neighbouring peoples around the Baltic too sending shockwaves and ripples far to the north, towards the Danes. As part of his imperial policy, Charlemagne tended to use the strategy of divide and rule, exercised so often by his Roman forebears. Expertly utilised to turn potential foes into friends, and of course, enemies into divided factions. One of the peoples he allied himself with were the Obotrites, a West Slavic people traditionally hostile to the Saxons. In 798, their king, Thrasco, inflicted a heavy defeat upon one of the last remaining factions of Saxons, the Nordalbingians, at the Battle of Bornhoved, which essentially ended the Saxon wars, bar a few isolated holdouts. In the aftermath of the battle, 
and in a final act of revenge, after the protracted and lengthy wars, Charlemagne allegedly had the entire Nordalbingian Saxon population either massacred or deported far to the south. Much of their now sparsely populated lands were given to the Oberdrites as a reward. To the north, however, past the Daneverk, King Gudfred must have waited with bated breath for news from the south. The Danes were no friends to the Saxons. The very existence of the huge earthwork fortification along their border was a testament to that. Though this new threat, this was something else. Though Gudfred is first recorded in the Frankish sources in 804, he was likely a prominent leader before this date. Though lineage helped, the society he hailed from elected their leaders in part through reputation rather than heredity. Gudfred's father is named as Sigfred, a ruler who came to power sometime in the 770s. Incidentally, it is around this time that Widdekind, one of the last prominent war leaders of the Saxons, had apparently fled north into Denmark to seek temporary refuge and ultimately support during his wars against the Franks. As a Danish king of southern Jutland, it seems probable that Sigfred had at least some interaction with Widdekind, possibly even providing him with troops. Thus, by the time Gudfred took charge of part of Denmark, he was well aware of the storm coming his way. In 804, the now largely depopulated border territory of Holston, previously inhabited by the Saxons, was apparently given to the Obertrites to rule. Probably fearing an invasion either by them or the Franks, Gudfred is recorded as beginning a series of vast improvements to the Daneverk during this time, which is corroborated by archaeological evidence. It's thought that his wall was built with an earthen embankment topped by a wooden stockade and protected from the south by a deep ditch. Impressive fortifications and forts have also been found dating from this time, a potential clue to the changing psychology of the region. Denmark's most important town, Hedeby, which apparently already existed on the Schleen, was expanded and garrisoned around this time, and the early sections of the wall were designed to protect it. For the first time in their history, the Danes were now orienting themselves to the south. Possibly as a result of Charlemagne's policy of divide and rule, it's thought that Gudfred's brother, Halfdan, then a wealthy Jarl of several market towns south of the river Edia in northern Frisia, swore allegiance to the Franks in 807, rather than submit to his brother. By 808, however, the cracks in the outwardly unassailable Frankish war machine had already begun to show. The Emperor himself now spent most of his time housed up in his cathedral at Aachen, possibly riven with gout. Whereas before he had spent nearly every summer campaigning far and wide, from the Spanish marches in the south to the Baltic in the north, he was now old, 
and when a Frankish king died, due to a tendency to divide up inheritance between sons, a succession crisis almost always ensued. Ever eager to capitalise upon this curious throwback to the Franks' ancient Germanic roots, the Danes were ready. In 808, Gudfred forced the Obertrites to acknowledge him as their overlord. The citizens of the trading port of Rerich, then often frequented by Frankish traders and soldiers, were forced out en masse and resettled to the north in Hedeby, which was then being integrated into the Daneverk. Unwilling to fight yet another lengthy war from his already overextended borders, Charlemagne sent emissaries in an attempt to make peace with the Danes. His overtures apparently had no effect on the Danish king, who seems to have been set on a course of preemptive violence, possibly in order to forestall any potential invasions of his own lands. According to Charlemagne's biographer Einhard, who knew Charlemagne personally, Godfred was so puffed up with empty ambition that he planned to make himself master of the whole of Germany. He had come to look upon Frisia and Saxony as provinces belonging to him, and he had already reduced the Abadrites, who were his neighbours, to a state of subservience and made them pay him tribute. Now he boasted that he would soon come with a huge army to Archon itself, where the king had his court. In 810, in a grand display of his power, probably capitalising upon the Frankish armies being elsewhere in the vast Carolingian Empire, Gudfred is said to have led 200 ships south to plunder the Frisian coastline. He forced the merchants and peasants there to pay a hundred pounds of silver and successfully claimed northern Frisia as Danish territory. In order to protect the northern coastline of his empire, Charlemagne began paying other Danish chieftains to protect sections of his coastlines in the 810s. Einhard talks of Charlemagne leading expeditions into Saxony to wage war against Godfred in the last years of his life, suggesting that, in regards to seizing Saxony, he was really considered to be on the point of trying such a manoeuvre, and was only prevented from doing so by the fact that he died suddenly. He was killed by one of his own followers, so that his own life and the war which he had started both came to a sudden end. This sudden death saved Charlemagne from a major invasion. But, as time would tell, it was only the beginning. Another slightly later biographer of Charlemagne, Notker the Stammerer, further elaborates on Godfred's end. At a moment when Charlemagne was travelling on a protracted journey across his own wide empire, Gudfred, the king of the Northmen, encouraged by the emperor's absence, invaded the territory of the Frankish kingdom and settled down in the neighbourhood of the Moselle. Gudfred's own son, whose mother the king had only recently repudiated so that he might marry another woman in her place, caught up with him just as he was calling his falcon off a heron, and cut him through the middle with his sword. 
none of the Northmen dared to rely any longer upon his courage or his weapons, but all sought safety in flight. In this way, the land of the Franks was liberated without any great effort being made. The king was dead, but his torch of war would be carried by Scandinavians for centuries to come. Debate still rages as to whether some of the earliest Viking raids carried out during this same time period were actually retaliatory raids or even preemptive strikes against a perceived Christian enemy as a result of the Saxon wars. Could the Viking Age have in fact been sparked at least in part by a sense of cultural self-preservation as much as population pressure or greed? After all, monasteries as far away as Pictland and Ireland did lie within the same Christian sphere of influence as Francia, just like the Saxons, Frisians and Danes had to a certain extent existed within their own separate cultural sphere prior to their wars against Francia. Furthermore, the establishment of extensive trade networks in the 7th century would have given the Danes already a maritime culture, unprecedented access to the Western Christian world. Writing in the next century, with the benefit of hindsight, Notka has the following to say about the last years of Charlemagne's reign. Charlemagne, who was a God-fearing, just and devout ruler, rose from the table and stood at a window facing east. For a long time, the precious tears poured down his face. No one dared to ask him why. In the end, he explained his morose behaviour to his warlike leaders. My faithful servants, said he, do you know why I weep so bitterly? I am not afraid that these ruffians will be able to do me any harm, but I am sick at heart to think that even in my lifetime they have dared to attack the coast. And I am horror-stricken when I foresee what evil they will do to my descendants and their subjects. Hey guys, just a quick update here to let you know that I've actually started a brand new channel to go along with History Time. It's one for the real history buffs out there, and people who just like a good story. It's called Voices of the Past, and it's an attempt to tell history through the written records of the people who actually lived through it. I'd also like to quickly recommend a couple of other channels. So this guy, History of Vikings, runs a fantastic podcast, and he's branched out now into YouTube. So I'm expecting great things in the future from this guy. Vikings fans, head over and give him some love. And we've also got The People Profiles. This guy does half-hour documentaries on the greats from history. From Roman emperors to 20th century dictators, pretty much anything seems to be fair game. And it's great. Go check it out. Don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for watching. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>